What's the bubble man? He's not a what. He's a who. Mike Monroe, ex-lawyer from St. Paul, currently living in a geodesic dome off Highway 3. Really? Don't go out there. Why not? Oh, he's in quarantine. Self-imposed. He's allergic. To what? <laughs> the 20th century. The bubble man of Sicily, Alaska, Mike Monroe, new character on the show. Charles, what are you, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking, first of all, I freaked out on his introduction scene because I, we have been living in uh, these COVID times for way too long because <laughs> yeah. Ed just stepped inside. And I was like, whoa, 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 hang on now. And I was like, oh, wait, hang on. That's, that's actually natural. Like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, you were maybe understanding Mike's concern, but for different for different reasons. Yeah, I haven't had anyone like willfully step inside my home since like March. Wow. Like, it's, it's been such a long time. But uh, yeah, I like Mike. I I like him, but I don't know if I like like him. Yeah, I will say this. Um, I think maybe I don't know if we've talked about this, Charles, because I try to keep the spoilers pretty. You know, I try to keep them away from you. But uh, uh, you know, this is a recurring character, and you know, I think a lot of people remembering the show. Um, I, I certainly disliked Mike Monroe my first time watching it. I think I think uh, he's he's sort of a step in the wrong direction for the show in my memory. Having said that, I tried really hard uh, watching this episode uh, again this time to sort of try to see him in a new light or just just as if I had only seen it for the first time and just give him the benefit of the doubt. And you know, there's a lot to be said. I think uh, I think I appreciate him a little more, but I think there's a lot to unpack that we're gonna get get to in this episode. I think that he is a character that I constantly compared to Joel. I had an inkling that he was going to be the recurring character based on the way that he was introduced and how much screen time was given to him. And the main parallel that I can find between the two characters is that. Mike is really afraid to impose his existence onto anyone else, not out of like a politeness or shyness, but merely for his own well-being. Whereas Joel, because he's a doctor, he does have to impose himself onto other people. He has to tell them his medical advice in order to save their lives. So they're both being drawn to ways in which they don't really like it's not core to their being, but inevitably it is ending up being part of themselves. How do you mean? Okay, so I don't think that Joel is necessarily a very pushy person. There are times in which I can see that Joel's character will want to just be hands-off, just be like, I just want to do my own thing. I want to sit here and read this golf magazine. I'm going to be a-okay. And there are other times where I can see Joel, because of his doctoral duties, he's going above and beyond. And maybe that's kind of leaking into his personal life a little bit, into affecting who he is. Whereas Mike is kind of the same way, I feel, that he, in that he is opposite. He doesn't want to interact with other people because he's thinking of his own well-being. But because he's doing it so much, he might be becoming a little bit more considerate of, of, of other people. Oh, interesting. So Joel is, uh, in the role of a doctor, maybe too personal with people? Is that what you're saying? He doesn't seem like well, a very, not personal, but what's the... Well, actually, that is a good way of putting it. Like, maybe his bedside manners in Sicily are improving. Oh, that's true. that he wants to get to know the uh, people more, so he's imposing himself further. Uh, I can't speak too much about Mike, though, because I only have right. uh, 20 or so minutes to judge from him. 
Right. Well, what are we talking about, Charles? We're talking about Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television series. Uh, my name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. That's right. And I've seen the show quite a few times. Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. We like to overanalyze the series and try to expand the reach of the show by, you know, like usually every episode we'll find somebody, acquaintance or friend, someone who has never watched the show before or maybe is seeing it for the first time. We kind of want to get like a fresh perspective and, uh, I don't know, get the word out about the show. Okay, so let's start off. Season four, episode five, Blowing Bubbles. So we start off with Ed driving in his truck delivering uh, what appears to be a care package from Ruth Ann to this geodesic dome structure. Uh, It's not very large. It's definitely enough just to house maybe one individual right there. And inside of it is Mike. Yeah, this new character that we, you know, sort of introduced in that opening bite earlier. Uh, This is our introduction to Mike Monroe. It's the geodesic dome. It's like very modern, very, just the color is like everything's kind of white with, uh, he's got a lot of plants in there too. And the music is very calming. It's sort of like a sort of piano whenever Ed is like getting closer to the door. Though I did want to mention when Ed is driving up, it's a little different. The The music is sort of like this big band swing song. It's actually replaced on the DVD. The um, Apparently the broadcast music would have been Lionel Hampton's On the Sunny Side of the Street. But here on the DVD, the song is Swingtown by Perry Music. But anyway, yeah, Mike, the the dome. I can't remember in this in this opening gambit, does... Ed go inside here or he simply stays outside or what's going on? No, it's not until after the credit that he goes inside of the place. So I started looking into geodesic domes. I had heard of them before uh, as minimalistic living, but I didn't know a whole lot about them. And it turns out that there's a whole lot of disadvantages to living in one. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I I saw something recently about sort of the trend of, um, what are those things called? Like those freight um, container Homes, you know, like sort of these efficient homes. Like the boxcar children. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, you know, and I imagine um, maybe it's, I I never imagined it was the same for the geodesic dome, but um, tell me about that. Well, theirs is mostly a logistical issue. So whenever you buy a lot of building materials, they're in rectangular shapes Mm. because that's the standard shape you would build a house in. But in order to turn into a triangle, it's going to cost more because then you have to shave off the parts to turn it into a triangle. Uh, you got to do fire escapes and windows. That's got to <laughs> conform to code. That costs a lot of money to be able to implement those in a circle structure. Wiring for electricity is expensive. And the number one problem that they had with these domes is roof leakage. Because oh. at the top of the dome, it's flat. And when it's flat, a lot of water can accumulate on top of it, which then just leaks through the dome. Yeah, a lot of a lot of weight up there, I guess. Yeah, it just caves in. And there's claims of new building strategies when they're saying, like, no, that problem can be lessened. But, I mean, it's just gravity. Like, yeah. it inevitably, like, if you're not having that, then it's not a geodesic dome at that point. <laughs> like, if you don't, like, it's got to have that property. <laughs> Yeah, you call it something else. Uh, Mike even mentions in the episode that he has to get all of his furniture and things like, um, I guess it's like his uh, like sort of kitchen area. He's like, everything is custom designed because it can't really fit into this uh, dome. You know, that's like also you're saying, another thing. The, the rectangles. Yeah. And- it's really hard to design your house when it's in a circle structure. So like the couches that you get and the TV stands, 
that would just take up rooms because it wouldn't fit naturally into a circle. It would just be jagged edges. So you have to buy custom-made furniture that curves with it, which is, you know, also money coming out the bank. Right. I remember, uh, I think it was Buckminster Fuller who was sort of a big proponent of the geodesic homes, you know. But I'm trying to remember what the, because obviously those are some startling disadvantages. Is, is the advantage, I want to say it was something like they were really easily like you could construct them quickly or they are um, like Mike mentioned something about like having a helicopter, basically dropping the house down, you know, like transporting the house to Sicily, you know, kind of uh, dropping it down. And I think that's actually a, a thing like these, maybe uh, the advantage of these houses is they you could get them moved quickly or constructed quickly. Do you, do you know? I, I think I would agree with that. It looks like something that would be easily, Deli- well, like I put easily in quotations, right. but like you can't just airlift a house. Right. Like that's not happening. But on a dome like this and how small it is, I, I can see that it's a feasible strategy. Well, I would say that the biggest advantage of the geodesic dome is that it makes for a very good mascot for Epcot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, when you think about geodesic dome, that's pretty much that's it. That's like the, uh, the poster. I was just in there recently. Oh, really? Uh, but pre-COVID times. Okay, um, well, yeah. It uh, it still holds up, man. Oh, nice, yeah. What is in Epcot again? I've been there, but... Well, so do you mean ago. like Epcot, the entire park, or just like the dome? What is the... Is the dome simply a sculpture, or you, you go inside, right? It's yeah, like yeah, a there's, a, there's a ride in there. Oh, wait, what's the ride in there? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's is it called Space Mountain or something, or is that the one? No, or? that's a no, that's an entirely different one. That's <laughs> <laughs> I know the name of the structure is called Spaceship Earth, but okay. I'm trying to make sure that the ride is also called Spaceship Earth. I don't think the ride has a name, but it's basically like a 15 minute ride, and it's traveling through human communications from when we were like cavemen and going forward in time and seeing how communication gets invented and all that. It's pretty neat. It's like a it's like stepping into like a Chuck E. Cheese or something where you see like those little <laughs> animatronics and it's still working. You're like, wow, this is really cool. Nice. Yeah. I guess the ride at Epcot. Yeah. It doesn't really, I was just trying to see that too. There's not really a, maybe it's called Spaceship Earth, but um, well, we should say that Mike Monroe's house in the show uh, was a set that was constructed. It was built by the production designer on the show, Woody Crocker. And there's some focus on this set in the Northern Exposure book. Uh, I'm actually going to read a passage from it here. So they had just finished building the most expensive of the 80-some standing sets they've built for the show, the two domes, which together cost approximately $100,000. You could have built a real house, Crocker says, jokingly inviting his visitor to come and move in. We can use the rent money. I wonder what the two domes were. Did they build two (laughs) whole sets? Well, it's simple. One dome is going to be used as the actual dome, and the second dome is going to be hurled on the catapult on future episode. <laughs> yeah, nice prediction. Uh, the, that trebuchet catapult also designed by Woody Crocker um, again. Oh, uh, we need to send him an email then, because we were, we were talking about this in the previous episode, that I think oh, yeah. it could not have hurled that please, coffin. Woody, please explain how this... Actually, wow. Okay, so there is a... Um, a blueprint of the geodesic dome in the book we can post on Twitter later. And then also there's a sort of a schematic blueprint for, for the, uh, Trevi say Charles, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll be able to dis- maybe we'll discuss this on our Patreon. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I can show it to you now, but here. 
Can you even see that as the quality? That you get? Yeah, I can. I can see it's that. Probably too uh, dark. No, 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 I can see it. I can see it. Um, I still don't understand how that works. That doesn't explain like. Okay, let's let's jump off of that. Um, Real quick, I should say, at the time of recording, I didn't realize that Woody Crocker had passed away in 2009, so unfortunately we won't be able to reach out to Woody to ask about the mythic trebuchet. Instead, I think we should take this moment to say, rest in peace, Woody, and thank you for bringing the show to life. Okay, so for the next scene, we see that Ruth Ann is in the, I guess it's the shed area. What is that area called at the bottom of the shop, like the basement? Yeah, I guess the basement. So in the basement, she's looking for a world's best mother mug so that she can put it out ahead of time for when her son Matthew comes to town. Yeah, I think Maggie, um, you know, runs down the stairs into the basement to help Ruth Ann grab some stuff. And uh, Maggie mentions, oh, this is the the truck driver poet. But no, uh, Ruth Ann corrects her. No, that's uh, Rudy. My, uh, this is my other son, Matt. He's the investment banker from Atlanta or, you know, living in Atlanta. But um, I like her, what she's got here, her little bit of description of, um, of Matt. Hmm? Matthew isn't like you or me. He has no interest in music or books or gardening or dogs. As a boy, his mind was only on money or things. You know how kids collect stamps. Matthew sold his collection in the fifth grade for $2,000. Wow. So you see, we have absolutely nothing in common. Sorry, that just reminded me, Charles, of uh, one time we were joking about, like, what the worst dating profile would be. And it's oh, like, yeah? I don't like music. I don't like pizza. I don't like movies. <laughs> Basically, what Ruth Ann is, how Ruth Ann is describing her son, Matt. Well, this is a, a little bit of my smart ass coming out of me, but I don't know if Ruth realizes this. But music and books and gardening and dogs are all underneath the umbrella of things. Oh, right. She says he's only interested in money and things. Well, well, things and <laughs> things includes everything else, right? I guess. Yeah. What is it? Person, place, or thing? Those are the three nouns. So he doesn't like people or places. Just, just the things. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm just nitpicking. I'm being uh, jackass. <laughs> But um, I have to say, uh, you know, Rudy sounds like a really cool character. I hope we get to meet him somewhere down the line. But I, I like Matt. Um, I, let's, let's talk about sort of maybe let's follow that plot line. Yeah, sure. I agree. I like Matt as well. Matt, who is played by Joel Polis, seems like somebody that just lost his path a little bit. Like it's kind of a midlife crisis for him because I think they mentioned he's around 40 years old, give or take. And he just got fired from mergers and acquisitions. And instead of being a real dump about it or just really falling into a hole, he wants to go visit his mother. Like, it's a really sweet thing to do, in my opinion. Yeah, it's like after being kicked out of this uh, sort of career that he had made for himself, maybe he steps back and takes a breath and thinks like, you know, what was my life like before all of this like cloud of... uh, finances and and this just steady steady work um so i guess i mean i'm I'm only imagining you know what what it's going through his head but that brings him to sicily alaska um which is really kind of the perfect place to to do sort of this decompress and of course his mother's there and he needs to visit his mom 
Yeah, you can see that they don't have the best of relationships. Whenever she's cooking dinner for him, she accidentally cooks Rudy's favorite dish of pork oh, yeah. chops. Yeah. It was meatloaf with ketchup and bacon on top. <laughs> and it, I wouldn't say it's a bad relationship, but it's definitely one where they were simply mother and child and not much more than that. Right. It's not like they keep in touch you know, necessarily, but th- it's not because they despise each other necessarily. I think, uh, as we come to find out, Matt had his own sort of, um, direction in his life. And no matter what Ruthann wanted, uh, he just went his own way and she, she didn't interfere, you know? So it's, it's not really like you're saying, it's not like it's, um, she, she despises him or anything though. I do like, she has this line here. She says, you once told me that your only regret is that Wall Street closes for Christmas. <laughs> so in the next scene with Matthew, we see that he's helping Ruthann out in the store, kind of talking with Ed. And I kind of like that Ed is asking him about these real people that were indicted on uh, insider trading. Yeah. They were actually real people, though. This was filmed in 1992, and all these people were small fries before Enron. That was 19, <laughs> right. later 90s. <laughs> yeah, let's see. He mentions... Michael Milken first, uh, who uh, you may know Trump has pardoned, uh, Ivan Boisky, and he mentions he had once had lunch with Marty Siegel. I think these were all, the, they were all sort of uh, indicted in the same insider trading. But this is where Matthew gets the realization that he wants to create a tackle shop, which is, if you don't know, a tackle is equipment meant to help catch fish. Right. So, you know, his whole thing is people change, mom. I, I've given up the dollar and uh, he's trying to figure out what he wants to do. He he mentions he's uh, not going back to Atlanta. So he's going to be there for the foreseeable future there in, in Sicily. And yeah, tackle shop. He mentions when he was a little boy, he, he hated, Ruthann says, you hated fishing. He says, that's true. But I always used to tie like the I guess they're called fishing flies, is I think is what he says. And he used to sit in the back seat in the car while dad and Rudy were fishing. I would tie the flies. I like that he gets right into the logistics of opening right. up that shop. He's like, I need like 400 square feet. I'm going to need all these things. Like that building in front of the pizza parlor, that'll work out fine. Like he's got his mind on the money. I like that. Like that's a, you need, you clearly need those subset of skills to succeed. Yeah, if anything, Matt has incredible drive, and that should, I don't think that should be taken as like um, a penalty to his character or anything like that. Though Ruthann does have to check him. You know, he's like, you just got here. Your idea was to decompress, and you're already thinking numbers and, and money and things like that. Uh, he, 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 gets the, he gets the drift. He says, all right, yeah, step, uh, slow down, smell the coffee, I think is what he says. But I love. <laughs> I love what Ruthann says. <laughs> Why don't you go jog or something? Why don't you go jog? That's it's like you have too much energy. Like wear yourself out, tire yourself out, like calm down. <laughs> I forgot that Joel actually went for a jog in I want to say it was the second episode of the entire series. I think it was the first, the pilot. Cause uh It was the pilot? Yeah, he runs all the way to from his cabin to Ruthann's store and he grabs like the the gallon of water. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. There's like dogs, of course, crossing the street. (laughs) But unfortunately for Matthew, he gets hooked back in by Maurice. Maurice has this plan. He thinks that, similar to another plot point that he had previously, where he was going to utilize Sicily, Alaska to cure people of their mental, uh, mental illnesses. 
But yeah, he has a new business proposition where he wants to get investors on the ground floor. And obviously, Matthew would be a prize catch to have. Now, I'm using a lot of fishing metaphors here because I think it's kind of an <laughs> obvious write-in that he's trying to create a tackle shop, but in the end, he's the one who's being caught by Maurice. He's being reeled in. Wow, that's such like uh, sort of figurative language. I, I didn't think about it like that, but yeah. In the end, Maurice is like the fisherman. Matt Matt never was a great fisherman, so he's just caught by the um, by the lures, I guess. Yeah, Maurice's idea is like uh, sort of like a commune almost is kind of what he's describing, and he he gives it a name at one point. I don't know if that's the uh, just a working title or if that's what he's going to call it, but he says Spaceship Sicily. So uh, an interesting callback to that geodesic dome of Spaceship Earth. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Was that a specific callback from the writers to Spaceship Earth from uh, Epcot or? I don't know. Yeah, the whole idea of Spaceship Earth, I think also goes back to, or just reminds me at least of Buckminster Fuller, the idea that, you know, we're, it's, the world is small in comparison to our galaxy. You know, we're all flying through space on this spaceship in air quotes. That is uh, our planet. Well, that's actually really interesting. So I'm gonna fast forward a little bit onto another plot line that we haven't, yeah, uh, that we haven't really touched let's, on. Let's dip around. At the end of this episode, we see that Mike is actually in an astronaut suit. Right. He is an explorer of space. So we can see that maybe like these are parallels that we need to be. These are parallels that <laughs> we can be threats. latching onto. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really quickly about the <laughs> the uh, astronaut suit. That's just like the perfect. Um, like we need to start. I need an astronaut suit, like for this uh, for our quarantine. <laughs> there was actually uh, I, I saw this recently. I think it was a segment on the Daily Show, with, and Ronnie Chang was the one who was doing it. Where a DJ had invented a COVID suit, so it was like this. It kind of looked like an astronaut's helmet, but not really. Uh-huh. And it would play music, but also. It, it would be quote unquote, you? PPE. Yeah, but it totally didn't. Like they brought an expert in. They're like, ah, this thing would not protect you. It like, doesn't actually whatsoever. work. <laughs> was it for the DJ to wear or was it for the people like attending the concert? It was for like consumers to buy. Like, oh. He was getting into the business of PPE. Right. Okay. It's like a more. It was a millennial COVID suit was the way he <laughs> described it. <laughs> a boutique. Uh, yeah. Boutique PPE with like its own trance concert happening inside uh inside that helmet um hey i want to actually i'm genuinely curious on this i wonder if an astronaut suit is actually heavy i think i would imagine they're they look pretty bulky and you know we've seen them i've been to the like the nasa down in in houston oh my wait oh my god uh they weigh 280 pounds (laughs) whoa well let's think about that i guess like if you are going out into space uh i mean there's no gravity so uh, you're still, you know, it's, it's, it's mass, I guess, but you're not being pulled down. It's not weighing you down. It's just maybe more of like giving you momentum in a certain direction. And then I guess if you're on the moon, we typically think of like the characteristic astronaut, um, stepping on the moon, you know, there's a little bit of gravity there. So a heavy suit will keep you down. But I imagine that the suit isn't heavy because they want to hold you down to the surface of the moon. I think I imagine it's, got a lot of protection probably a lot of layers from i don't know what the temperature and the climate might be like out in outer space well distinctly cold but (laughs) i would imagine that it's one of those situations where you had 
you don't have to factor in weight because you're you're weightless in space. And they're like, well, make yeah. it however heavy you need it to be. <laughs> yeah. Like it doesn't matter, man. Like, yeah, it's got to keep you warm. It's got to keep oxygen inside, block out radiation. We yeah, don't that care just brings a question. How is this guy walking around in a 280-pound suit? <laughs> He's so skinny, too. All he eats is like baby baby food, <laughs> carrot puree. <laughs> uh, I do like that he has like a briefcase with him. It's like feeding him oxygen. Oh, yeah. That's a neat little detail right there. But yeah, I think that it plays really nicely with the theme of him being like a fish out of water. So if we take that expression, we'd be like... Um, like a spaceman visiting a new planet, like that yeah. would be the proper analogy. Yeah. Well, okay. Going back to Matt, back to Maurice. You know, Matt is is still staying with Ruthann, and he is he's still like tying the fishing lures, but really he's kind of just like pretending to do this. And whenever Ruthann like closes the door, he opens up his laptop and. I think he gets busted at some point because uh, he's got a he's got his fax machine set up. You can't hide a fax machine. It's like giant. <laughs> and it starts printing out uh, and Ruthann is, asks him about it. Oh, yeah. He loads up the old IBM ThinkPad 700. <laughs> some, uh, oh, man. some retro computing trivia. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, he gets busted red-handed using that fax machine. And that's when... What is her name? Matt or the mother? Why oh, am I blanking on her name? Just <laughs> blanked on her name. Okay, I got it. That is when Ruthann decides to have the heart-to-heart conversation with him, which is started by hauling. And I like this short little scene right before this, where they're at the brick and he's really tuned in and watching this television program. Oh yeah, and hauling is talking with her, and hauling says that. The tackle shop won't work because the only reason people even go to tackle shops is so they can talk fishing, and Matthew doesn't like fishing. So it's going to fail right there. And I like this because it makes Hauling out to be a really wise character, and he's just saying it straightforward, and he's got wisdom and expertise in how these markets would work. And it's a rare moment for that, I think, for this season because oftentimes we've been seeing Hauling as being really bumbling or just unaware of how the youth work somewhere <laughs> in that area but i really like it when they write hauling to be somebody that just knows his stuff and yeah i like that he knows this that like the tackle shop won't work with matthew being the head of it yeah he's aware he's wise he knows people and uh you know it's that quality he's like a a friend is going to tell you the truth you know they're not going to just say oh that's a that's a great idea you'll, you'll run a tackle shop but you know, he he goes to Ruthann and says, as you said, it's you know this this could never work, but um yeah, I, I love Holling is such a cool character. He can be he can be really fun at times, though. A lot of times, uh, it, he's used for comedy. He's a great comedy actor too. But um, no, I like these moments as well. So this is where Holling gives Ruthann the advice to kind of tell her son that he needs to follow who he is. And she doesn't have to be the one to push him in that general direction. Now, naturally, she would have liked for him to be outdoorsy like her and Rudy. But he's just not that type of person. He's an investment banker at heart. That's who he is. And he needs to return back to his planet. Yeah, Ruthann really has got to go, you know, sit down and kind of level with Matt. But um, actually, before that, we get a sort of a precursor to 
this conversation that she was going to have with Matt um, because she first confronts Maurice for sort of, uh, you know, oh, yeah. I think she says stuff like, you're the kind of person who would like offer an alcoholic a, a drink or something. But they have a conversation. I, I kind of like the scene. She confronts him in K-Bear, like in his office. But we can hear, I like the sound. You can sort of hear like some reggae music in the other room. It's like really like bassy. And, uh, but it, it sounds like it's, you know, behind a wall. Uh, but it's an interesting soundscape. And Ruthann, um, you know, really, what does she say to Maurice? She says, listen, Maurice, didn't you ever want to change your life? You know, a lot of this episode is about obviously Matt wanting to make a change in his life, but I, I think it also applies to Mike later on. We'll get to that. Uh, Maurice responds, "No, he doesn't. He's never wanted to change his life." But um, yeah, what what else happens in this scene? Yeah, this is where Maurice kind of confronts Ruthann about her hypocrisy of saying like, "I don't want him to." How does she do it? Because I I had to watch this scene like yeah, it's a, times. it's kind of an interesting flip about. Uh, let me watch it again. Yeah, there's a there's a flip about on it, and I remember understanding it, but I had to watch it a lot. So she wants Matthew to open up this tackle shop because she's thinking about Matthew's well-being because that's what he wanted. And so she's really unhappy whenever Maurice is guiding Matthew off to a different direction. But then Maurice kind of points it out to her and saying like, well, you may be claiming that you don't want to be involved with him. You want him to do the thing that he wants him to do. But at the same time, you're also saying that you want him to go do the tackle shop at the same time. So... You know, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of a confusing. It's not necessarily plainly laid out, but you can tell that something is sort of stirring up in Ruthann. She's got maybe a, a sort of cognitive dissonance, like things aren't really aligning. Uh, she has a certain picture of what her relationship is with Matt, and it's starting to uh, break apart because the hypocrisy being like, you know, she wants to support Matt with whatever he wants to do, but... Whenever he wants to do investment banking, no, no, she doesn't want to support that. And, you know, she thinks, uh, you know, it's not her idea for the tackle shop. It's what he wants to do. But she's now maybe pressuring him more to do it than what he actually wants to do. There's, there's a lot of um, things disconnecting here in, in her thought process. Right. But that's a good way of explaining it right there. Yeah. And so that, I, I felt that scene, I think it ends with uh Ruthann just sort of gets like flabbergasted and she says, oh, stay out of it and kind of like runs off. Um, she doesn't really win an argument with Maurice. He almost, he almost kind of like bests her in that scene. But I felt like that rolls into the conversation she has with Matt in the end. So when she does sit down and, uh, and talk to him, she says to Matt, you know, she always wanted him to be more like his brother, Rudy. Rudy was, I think in her words, she says a dreamer but Matt is a doer. And, and we've already talked about, it. he's got an incredible drive and energy just behind his passions and the things he wants to do, even though those are, uh, we talked about this on the podcast before, Charles, how like anyone working like in finances or law or, or anything like that is like painted as the devil in, in <laughs> television or in art or in media usually. I, I can see it on both ways. Like I, I get that, liberal arts majors are easier than STEM majors and that you don't necessarily will come out with a really great job and that you'll be more inclined to maybe complain about your state of well-being. 
But also, like, stem majors are such a... I mean, it can be such a stick in the mud, in my opinion. So I can see it on both ways, where the show is making fun of people that are going into those quote-unquote concrete fields. But, you know, it, I don't think it's wrong to go go into finance itself. Like, yeah. neither neither field is the right call. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's it's just... It's hilarious that it's so often painted in... A negative light, but you have that sort of background, Charles. So I like it when you point that out. It's just like there's <laughs> nothing wrong with, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, well, which one would you rather be? Uh, would you rather be a dreamer like Rudy or a doer like Matthew? I think you'd want to be a little bit of both. Like you want to, you want to be a doer to get things done, uh, but you want to be a dreamer to have, uh, I don't know, the ambition and. Uh, vision to do something great, I guess. I, I like that answer, but I would actually be more inclined to say that you want more doer inside you than dreamer inside you, at least for me, at least for me. I don't, I don't want to impose my <laughs> worldviews onto other people, but I would like to have the traits of a doer more than a dreamer because I feel like if you dream too much, then those thoughts just kind of uh, become like butterflies inside your head and you just keep flying inside there, just never leaving if you don't have the doer's ambition or the um, the wherewithal to implement the plans. Definitely. I mean, I think I can agree, actually. Uh, there's the whole idea of procrastination. I liked your image of the butterflies in your head. But um, also, you know, I can think of a thousand times when just talking with friends and like artist circles, talking about this great idea, this thing that we're going to do, but it just never comes to fruition, you know? Mm. But um, no, Ruthann says that she realizes how much Matt is like her or that she is pretty much just like Matt. You know, she she says like a doer. Um, it's only that she she only wanted Matt to do things that she wanted him to do. So this is finally her coming to grips, coming to terms uh, with this idea of like, um, you know, I, I realize we're too much alike, Matt, you and I. Uh, and so, you know, do what, what you want to do because I know that's how you will succeed. Right. And at the end, he decides to go back to Atlanta to presumably go back into investment banking. The thing that I have a little bit of a problem with this plot line and how it resolves itself is that he initially came to Sicily because he felt like he was being too burnt out from the world of finance and though he's gained a new relationship with his mother they're starting to see each other's personhoods more it doesn't actually solve his initial problem of being burned out unless they considered him making those little foot hooks and doing maurice's plan as r and r that was enough to get him out of the funk yeah i don't know maybe he's the type of person i think a lot of people can relate to this like when you're on vacation you know, the first couple days are relaxing and amazing, but then after after a couple of days, you're like, man, I really need to get get back and, and do something. You know, like I feel like I'm just uh, sitting around. But um, so, so yeah, maybe there's that aspect of his personality peeking in. Mm. Okay, so on the final scene with Matthew and Ruthann, I actually have a question about this, and I was wondering if you can shine some light on it. So Matthew's outside in this car. He's waiting to get in. And Ruthann comes out of her store to go say goodbye to him. And she apologizes. She says, I'm sorry to him. And he says, like, it's a, it's a, it's fine. Why is she apologizing? Yeah, so I went back to watch the scene just now just to make sure. Uh, but I think what's happening here is um, I, I don't think this episode necessarily tees it up very clearly. And not saying that that's a 
that's one of its faults, you know, maybe that's a good thing that it's, uh, it's not so obvious or on the nose. But I think uh, what this is all boiling down to is, in the end, Ruth Ann realizing that, yeah, I don't, I don't want to put it too harshly, like, it's not that she didn't love Matt, but that she never fully understood him. She always had her own vision for him in the direction that he was going to go. I think this is what sort of her revelation is at, at that ending scene when she sort of um, forgives him and says, you should be, you should do what you want to do. Um, it's that she realizes now she feels sorry that, um, you know, she never fully understood him. Oh, okay. Uh, it was just confusing because it didn't follow. Like yeah. she didn't say that in the bedroom scene. She said it like the next day. And I, I thought it was something else, but no. Okay. That totally makes sense. Well, let's turn our attention to the probably maybe the primary plot of this episode, going back to the bubble man that we sort of talked about at the top of our podcast, Mike Monroe. Um, there, there is a second time that Ed visits Mike and he enters the geodesic dome. He gets to put on some scrubs and uh, I think he's got, does he have like a, I can't remember. Does he have a mask or no? I don't think he has. It's not like He does hazmat. not have a mask. He, he does not. Yeah. It's not like hazmat. He's just got the scrubs. But I, again, another delivery. But um, I, I like, you know, they, they sort of talk about it. Ed says, you know, I had a, I think he says he had like a cousin or an aunt who was allergic. Except she doesn't live in a bubble. She just can't eat oranges. And Mike responds, uh, well, I'm I'm very allergic. <laughs> you know that there's an actual bubble boy disease and it's not his? Right. So the bubble boy thing is not... Uh, so they we'll talk about it in a second, but the MCS uh, that they mentioned in this episode, the bubble boy, is that more of like the... Well, I'm thinking about the movie Bubble Boy now, but that's like uh, Munchausen <laughs> by proxy or whatever. What's it called? Or is this uh, completely different? I actually, what does the movie? I know there's a movie with like it's it's two movies, isn't it? Jake there? Gyllenhaal is is in is Bubble Boy. I thought there was, it was based on an earlier one though. Yeah, yeah, the one with John Travolta. Oh, the boy in the plastic bubble it was inspired by. Okay, cool. Yeah, I didn't know. Let me see that. what the let me see what the uh, born without an immune system. Yeah, it's kind of what. He, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so he has MCS, which is kind of controversial within the scientific community uh whether or not it's even real but the actual bubble boy disease is a real thing it's called severe combined immunodeficiency and it's a really rare genetic disease like i think it's like one out of like a hundred thousand people get it and it's when i, I don't want to get too much into it because i myself am not a doctor but the <laughs> basic understanding is that you're really vulnerable to infectious disease so you need to be in a sterile environment which is why it is called the bubble boy disease. I think somebody actually kind of lived like that, like a like a real right. human being. In the movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, he has that disease, but the, spoiler alert, skip ahead 15 seconds. Uh, it's revealed that his uh, mom was just sort of like kidnapping him, you know, like basically he didn't have the disease. She just did, she was afraid to let go. So she wanted him to, you know, be sheltered from the outside world which is, you know, uh, maybe part of the psychosis of Mike. I, I guess that there's a lot to unpack with him, but eventually, you know, there's sort of um, a connection he has with with Maggie and and her trying to bring him out of his out of his bubble. Mm. That actually reminds me of a Thirty Rock episode. It was called Gavin Valor. It starred Steve Martin as this person that was 
he had developed severe agoraphobia. He would not leave his house. Like, absolutely would not leave it. And initially, in the beginning, it looks like he's just an eccentric billionaire. Like, he, he got this... Um, agoraphobia but then it turns out that he was just he's underneath house arrest for embezzlement and he was using liz lemon <laughs> as a pretend date so that he could flee from the house arrest wow that's pretty great so i've got some notes as i was watching the episode again i was trying to say i'm trying to imagine watching for the first time and give mike the benefit of a doubt because in my memory, and, and as, as I'm sure many people remember the show, Mike is sort of um, a challenger to Dr. Fleischman. And they have sort of a, a scene where they challenge each other in this episode. But um, obviously there is a bit of a little bit of a maybe a romance developing between Mike and Maggie, you know, which maybe drives a wedge further between Joel and Maggie, which is sort of the will-they-won't-they they of the entire first and much of the second season, pretty much the show, you know, it's always uh, coming back to that weird sort of flirtation that Joel and Maggie have. But anyway, my my initial notes on Mike's character kind of came from this scene when Ed visits Mike the second time and he's in the um, the scrubs. He even offers, uh, Mike offers, uh, Ed can just keep the scrubs because he's going to have to get rid of the scrubs after Ed leaves anyway. But um, I wrote down, you know, Mike, He's got this very odd disease, and normally if uh, someone is allergic or someone is um, maybe concerned with their health, they're usually pretty distant from people, pretty dismissive of other people. It's like, oh, I can't believe uh, you're smoking in front of me or something like that. And obviously, if someone started smoking in front of Mike, he would probably suffer some severe symptoms. But uh, I don't think that he would be necessarily like uh, offensive to them. He's... He's not really demanding of anybody. He he lives in like his own bubble, but he doesn't necessarily shun anyone outside of it. You know, he invites Ed in and later he invites Maggie in. She, she's not wearing any scrubs. He seems just like a welcome addition to Sicily. He's strange, but of course that's not out of the ordinary for uh, for this show. But I don't know. There, this My opinion of Mike sort of changes as we go throughout the episode, but that was my initial thoughts in this scene. Oh, okay. I like that. I like the parallels that you're drawing between Joel and Mike. I think that they are opposing forces, even yeah. not just in profession. So Joel is a doctor who is a man of science, and this guy's got a questionable disease. I don't want to say he's anti-science, but he's... Yeah, it's sort of like, uh, well, at least in Joel's mind, there's not um, there's not like a medical proof of it uh, being a chemical thing. It's more of a psychological thing from, from Joel's point of view. Right. So they kind of run antithetical amongst each other. But the similarity between them is that they are both fish out of water. That's true. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of, uh, it's sort of like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, like opposing sides of the force. They both want the same thing, but uh, they have to fight each other. I don't know. Yeah. It's kind Wait, of the so perfect antagonist. You're right? saying that one of them is directly evil, though. Like, one <laughs> of them is in the wrong direction. I know, man. I'm telling you, this is Mike was like one of my least favorite things about the show, remembering it. But I will say, I, I, I don't know. I, I will have I have more negative things to say as the episode goes on, but I, I still think I'm appreciating him a little more than I remember. Who knows if that's going to last as I rewatch more of this season? But um, I think that I I might have liked him more 
if I was watching this 10 years ago. And the reason I say this is because as I grow older and as the world continuously improves on education and on science, I, I think it's disingenuous to kind of go into this direction to be like, oh, I have this, you know, this disease that is not clinically been proven and he's just trying to say like it's a real thing like it's affecting me and it's doing all that and while it may be affecting him psychologically like joel says like you're kind of pulling resources away from other people you're kind of legitimatizing something that doesn't need to be legitimatized uh we don't need to go into the anti-science route that we are kind of going <laughs> toward so I think that's what annoyed me about the character. I was like, if this was real life now in the year 2020, it's like, that's... Mm, nah. Right. It would be seen more as... I mean, it already sort of appears anti-science when you bring Joel in to the picture, uh, but it would appear very anti-science, I guess, in, in today's audience. But I wanted to believe at least part of it, uh, maybe the idea for the character at first, is a, sort of a progressive idea. Like, this is before you know, like Al Gore and, you know, the popularization of the idea of, of climate change. So it's sort of a progressive idea. And I think, I think Chris even sort of um, talks about it in certain parts of the episode, talking about how humans have mistreated Mother Earth. And this is maybe a way for the ways that we don't care for Mother Earth, how that comes to bite us in the end. Mm. Yeah, it's so close yet so far. Like <laughs> the, the the existence of climate change pro science. Like that's all like, you know, every single scientist agrees on that. But like the the, the way you are utilizing it. <laughs> all I'm trying to say is that I think Mike's the idea for a, a bubble character, the idea for bringing in this controversial disease, I hope I don't think it was intended for anti-science, though they can play off of that for conflict with Joel. I think uh, it's also a, a mechanism for introducing some some of these like more progressive ideas. Uh, but again, yeah, it's it's such a weird gray area. And again, I don't know if that's like what we even want to care about when we're watching Northern Exposure. But I don't know. Let, let's see how it continues throughout the episodes. Um, but here in this episode, what happens next with Mike? Um, oh, well, real fast, I wanted to say... We played the bite in the beginning already whenever um, Joel is explaining who the bubble man is, uh, but he's opening a package that is, I guess, for the treatment of Mike Monroe, um, something that Maggie delivers. It looks like he's using like a bone saw to cut this like cardboard box open. I thought that was odd. Um, but in this scene, he, he gives a description of MCS. It is MCS, multiple chemical syndrome. People claiming that they can't work because the environment screwed them up. Wow. See, what people like Mike Monroe contend is that the environment has totally altered their immune system to the point where the slightest whiff of toxic substances can send them into anaphylactic shock. Huh. Joel calls it multiple chemical syndrome, I think more than once in this episode. Uh, Chris calls it multiple chemical sensitivity. When you search this online, at least... Uh, what I was reading on on Wikipedia, it's it's called multiple chemical sensitivity. Mm, okay. Well, it's still got an S at the end of it. So, yeah. you know, 50-50 uh, virtual points. <laughs> Just call it MCS. So Mike has moved to Sicily because apparently it's one of the least polluted places in North America. I mean, obviously small town, but it also boasts a doctor uh, I think Joel says who's like virtually meets board certification or, you know, just like a very 
prestigious New York doctor, you know, but in, in a place that's not very polluted. Well, Mike isn't too far off. From what I'm able to see on this site, stateoftheair.org, Anchorage, Alaska and Fairbanks, Alaska are really clean cities to live in. Yeah, so it's kind of, uh, it would make sense, obviously, you figure it to be true, and in fact, it is. Um, so the next thing is Mike gets a visit from Maggie. Yeah, so it seems that Maggie wants to drop off some care packages for him. She's, uh, at this point, I think she's just curious of the phenomenon right. of the bubble boy. She wants to see what's going on over here. And he first interviews her, makes sure that she is not wearing any perfume or shampoo or any synthetic materials. And she claims that, like, yeah, no, I'm good. Like, I'm clean. Like, it's just eyeliner. Yeah, and she's sort of feeling him out. And you can tell that Mike can tell that Maggie does not, you know, does not really believe him at first. Um, but I think it's pretty interesting the way he sort of proves himself. The end of the scene is like as Maggie's leaving, you know, he's like, you you don't, you probably don't believe anything I'm saying. As she's leaving, he says, uh, he kind of stops her before she can leave. She's maybe like 20, 30 feet away. And he's like wafting a, the smell of her perfume. You know, she, it turns out she lied to him. She is wearing perfume and he can, he can detect like the certain elements of the scent, the notes. And in fact, he names the, the exact perfume for her. I think, uh, I can't remember what he's saying. Opium, I think. Yeah. That's her, that's her opium. perfume, right? Cause she gets that yeah. in another episode. Yeah. So he's got superhuman olfactory skills where he's able to figure out that she's wearing perfume. Though, do you think that she's wearing perfume because she wants to smell good for him? Uh, no, I don't think I can't, I can't remember exactly, but I think at this first part, it's true that she's curious, but I think the scene sort of ends with her kind of thinking he's bogus, you know, but he does win her over in the end by guessing the perfume and that's what kind of like flips her. So I think it's interesting. Why would she lie? Maybe it is partly that Charles, actually, I'm kind of coming around in the middle of my thought. Maybe she doesn't want to admit that she's wearing perfume, but she you know, she is trying to come off as attractive. I don't know. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. Does she find the concept of him very attractive? Like right off the bat, she hears about somebody that is self-imposing these limitations upon themselves. They don't want to go outside. They're incredibly scared. And maybe she's interpreting that as being very selfless. Maybe she's seeing like, oh, he doesn't want to exert his being onto other people. Uh, I, I find the conceptualization of this person to be really attractive. Like I have to go see it. And so maybe she was already smitten from the get go. Yeah. Like that reminds me, uh, the opening bite that we played on the podcast, uh, when Joel is telling Maggie about the bubble man, she does seem quite interested as even when Joel says, you know, this guy is, uh, you know, these types of people with MCS are bogus, you know, but she, she seems to be curious and kind of, kind of a believer in a way. She does end up going back to Joel after um, meeting Mike, and she's very curious. She, I actually like this scene because it's like Joel is just laying down on the bench in his lobby, in his, uh, in his office. We don't really get to see that side of the room too often, or at least we don't see it in this angle. But Joel is like laying down on the bench, and he's got the Golf Digest magazine, and Maggie kind of like pulls up a chair, like straddles a chair, and it's just they're they're kind of talking about about Mike. Hang on. I 
come look at this scene. It's 2009. That's the timestamp for it. Okay. Is it just me or is that head in hand like photoshopped onto that magazine? Oh, I see it now. If you look at the cover of Golf Digest, this I, I wonder what what issue, like what edition this is. But um, yeah, there is like a square box around the guy's face and around the guy's hands. The golfer there, it almost and looks his like feet. It's a, and his feet. So is it like highlighting a product, like these golf gloves, these golf shoes, or is it like highlighting, like analyzing this man's like pose? It does look weird. It's like highlighting those three aspects of of this golf man. This looks like the Photoshop skills that like I have. Oh, like, you think it, that like, it's not? It, it was a it was a different model, and they just like repl- yeah. They took this square. You cut a square <laughs> yeah. out, and drag it on top it's of like, the original photo. <laughs> All right, sorry. I'll, I'll bring this back in. Yeah. So I'm surprised that uh, Joel didn't see what was happening with Maggie. Because he kind of grills her about why she's bringing these ingredients to him. Because she's not cleared to bring it to him. Uh, only Ed is. Right, yeah. It's like, why are you going to visit him anyway? And Maggie is like, you know, it's got to be... I really like <laughs> I really like this exchange. Let me just play it here. Uh, Maggie talking to Joel. But he can't... What? You know. What? He can't, you know, touch people. Touch people. Well, yeah, you know, like uh, have a massage or... A massage? Yeah, well... A massage. Forget it, Fleischman. Hey, are we talking shiatsu, Swedish, or, or your conventional deep muscle kind of thing? I don't know why I even bother. Yeah, so Maggie is maybe a little embarrassed to try to picture the idea of Mike being intimate with another person. But also, you know, this is played on, I guess it's primetime TV, so you could you could get away with talking about sex, but... uh it's a little sen- it's it's a censorship in its own right. She's calling it just a massage. <laughs> so the next scene, I'm just looking at my notes. It's like Mike has Maggie over for dinner this time, and this is <laughs> this is where we see like the puree, like his food that he's eating. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised that he doesn't get his food in the IV. <laughs> really? Oh, are you? Just, what do you mean? Oh, he's just so afraid of everything. It's yeah, like so allergic to everything. So Anything like the only in. thing, the only thing he can consume is like pure nutrients. <laughs> Yeah, so just like, just put it on a drip. So now that Maggie's a little more on Mike's side, we can kind of learn a little bit more about how he's affected. Um, He talks about, you know, he was athletic at one point in his life and sort of all of a sudden he became overloaded with toxins, I guess. He's got migraines from maybe paint or carpeting fumes. He even goes on, uh, I think earlier he says something like he can't have a TV because of the like outgassing from the synthetic plastic materials and the electromagnetic uh, interference or um, sorry, electromagnetic field, I guess that's like it produces gives him like a stomach ache or something. That is also another uh, questionable uh, disease. Right, right. I think it's called electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Right. Yes. I think I've seen some, something about that as well in a documentary, but if I'm not mistaken, it's kind of treated the same way as MCS or, you know, at least in like uh, scientific studies or or is there some science behind it? Uh, definitely no science behind it. Uh, it is up there with MCS. Yeah. Have you ever seen Better Call Saul? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, okay. Uh, one of the main characters uh, suffers from EHS. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it is something kind of like I was saying how Mike's condition or or whatever you call it is in a way like a very progressive idea for the time. 
that sort of like electromagnetic hypersensitivity or, or whatever you called it, that's a sort of a good talking point for today. You know, I mean, we're surrounded by electronics now much more than in the 90s. Yeah, but that's a oh, man, that's no, just going to get me yeah. into another rant. <laughs> yeah, because sorry. obviously, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of people are thinking like 5G is causing certain <laughs> oh diseases or even causing COVID. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll steer clear from that discussion. But um, Mike says, you know, the only cure is like, I think Maggie says, you know, what is there a cure? And Mike says, yeah, sure. Shut down all industry and start over. It's a joke, obviously, from Mike. But um, also, I think this kind of inspires some of the ideas that Chris is talking about, you know, with like, is Mike supposed to be the first of many who will have this condition? Like as as we continue to tarnish Mother Earth, but um. that's actually kind of interesting because when I was researching geodesic domes and the construction of them, they had mentioned that the reason that it's so expensive is because it uses unconventional means. But if we had rearranged everything from step to one, like from the factory ground floor up, it's actually not that expensive to build. So if you start over all over again, how you do things, you could actually build geodesic dorms. So it's kind of, you know, the same thing. It's a metaphor for this guy. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like if the whole idea of like furniture were were rethinked, I guess you could say, like if that approach was (laughs) reapproached. Yeah, we started building things in triangle shape already instead of rectangular shape. If we had taken into account all these different measures, then yeah, it's not that bad. But because we don't think in that manner, it's going to consume more resources. Right. So we get next to the scene with Fleischman visiting Mike. And this is sort of in a way like a chess scene, like they're challenging each other, as we said. Here, let me play a quick bite just to set us up. Can we be frank, Joel? Absolutely. You don't think I have a problem? Well, that's not true. I, I think you definitely have a problem. But it's in my head? Basically. I, I think that your symptoms are psychogenic, yes. Yeah, I like this. I like that Joel's confronting Mike right off the beginning of the introduction of his character. So we're already going to be seeing that these two are going to become conflicting characters with each other. Yeah, and later Joel will explain to Maggie, it was like, I think he says it was like playing chess, but he also says it's like, you know, Mike was always one step ahead of me, you know, in in this like crazy idea. But um, there is a moment in, um, I think it's right after they they have that discussion, the the bite that I just played, where Mike says something like, you know, that's a perfectly rational way of thinking. And Joel says, why do, I, why do I feel like I was just insulted? And while I can sympathize with the fact that you do seem to be genuinely suffering, I think that the solution is psychological. It's not metabolic. Perfectly rational response. <laughs> Why do I feel like I was just insulted? No, 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 not at all. I consider myself a deeply rational person. And I think for me, that begins to underline, I don't know if you would call it like passive aggressive, but that is sort of the sneaky sort of villain aspect of, of Mike. I, I said, <laughs> the beginning of my notes, I said like, you know, this is a, character as any other that you might see in Sicily. But I think there is uh, at least some antagonism that's going to be kind of directly pointed at Joel, at least uh, for the moment. But Yeah, yeah, just like backhand insults and condescending remarks like, oh, you look much smarter than you appear. Yeah, and it's like, it's not mean, like it's it's a, you know, it's a, but it's, I don't know how, I guess is that called passive aggressive, I guess. 
So the next scene has Maggie waiting outside Joel's office and she's asking him his opinion about, you know, is Mike okay? And Joel's really honest. He's like, no, he's completely bonkers. He's beyond the pale. But if you look within the wheels of the wheels, you can kind of see the brilliance within him. And I like that Joel saying, like, if he used his powers for good, he'd be a really good deductionist. Like, he would be able to solve a lot of the world's problems. Yeah, he's got a brilliant mind, I think Joel says. He's supposed to be a lawyer or an ex-lawyer, I believe, too. That, that'll that come up, I, I think, later, but they introduced that early on. Um, let's see, Maggie has brought him, like, some printouts, something she found on, it was like a medical journal that she found on CompuServe, she said, which I think is like the OG Google, like the some one of the original, like, internet search sites. Oh, yeah, that's, like, number one thing to tell if you're a boomer. Uh, but she brought him sort of like some papers about an article on immunology, I believe, and, uh, something about provocation neutralization, which I didn't even look up, but Joel insinuates that it's something to do with the idea of injecting possible carcinogens, uh, is counterintuitive. Yeah. It's a, it's wonky science treating wonky science, but this is also the scene where, Joel realizes that Maggie has a thing for Mike and he compares her to an Emily Bronte character saying that he's handsome, flawed, and totally inaccessible. He's perfect for you. Yeah. Yeah. This is like sort of, uh, I don't know, maybe Joel is overanalyzing it to a point, but he's right. You know, she has a curiosity with Mike, as we've already said on this podcast, but, um, you know, it only goes further. It's kind of driving a wedge between, Maggie and Joel, because they can now argue about uh, Mike. And uh, let's see, the next plot point here is Maggie goes again to visit Mike, except now they're going outside. They're going for like a a little walk outside the dome. Like it should be okay. Uh, Mike even like brings sort of like a satchel or like like a bag with, I'm sure, like pills and inhalers and things like that. Uh, And they're just gonna walk for a little bit, but they don't get very far. No, they maybe get a couple of feet outwards, but then he has to head back in. But the conversations that they're having is a little bit important because he's asking her how she ended up in Sicily and how she ended up doing the things that she's doing. And they were because of past boyfriends. Right. She mentions, uh, you know, she came to Alaska because she was dating a grad student named Dave. Um, he's the one who wrote mountain of my misgivings and and died um, frozen, I guess. And then she said, Bruce was who brought her to Sicily. Uh, Bruce was the one who died from, from bad potato salad. <laughs> I can't remember how that was first introduced, but uh, they're like, I think it's like they're listing all of Maggie's dead boyfriends and they're like, oh, of course there was a uh, Brad. Uh, it's like, oh, how'd he go? Um, bad potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually kind of interesting that Maggie is really drawn to Mike because from the way that her character is being written, Maggie looks like that she needs someone to fix. She wants somebody that has a clear problem and she wants to be the one to fix them. Uh, It's not clear whether it's for like ownership purposes, whether it's to say like, I did this for you. Now you owe me one. You you owe like a debt of gratitude. If it's a power thing uh, or if she feels that she needs like a way of validation within men. So this is the way she does it. But I find it interesting that she's drawn to men like that. And 
Joel is not somebody that needs to be fixed by anyone else. Joel seems to be comfortable within his own body. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's got his, he's maybe more stubborn, but I think there are a lot of aspects of Joel that, you know, he's not comfortable uh, in his own skin, but he is very stubborn and not wanting to oh, change right. in a way. Yeah, you're right. That's a better way to describe him. Yeah. But um, no, yeah, I think you were right about Maggie sort of wanting to, because she's really, um, I don't know, she she really wants to try to get Mike out of that bubble. That's kind of like what it boils down to at the end whenever, again, you know, we see Mike walking down with the astronaut suit. It's a, um, a pretty cool closing scene. But um, I mean, there's also maybe part of it is that, you know, Maggie maybe really does want to believe in, in some of this, uh, some of the ideas of what MCS implies, you know, even though Joel is uh, kind of dismissive in a way at sometimes. I, I should say also Joel isn't um, straight up mean to Mike. He, you know, he, he does say, you know, I, I understand, I do believe that you are suffering from symptoms. And I think Joel's goal is to just mitigate uh, whatever he can and to make, you know, the quality of life better for Mike. However, you know, I think Maggie maybe really does believe some of what, again, what MCS is implying. And that's what she's maybe latched onto with Mike and is trying to really see through if if this is the real thing, if it's happening and what what that could mean. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. So she's trying to find a way, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, go over Joel's head. So because right, Joel yeah, is too. the one saying like, this doesn't exist. Like it, it can't, through my logistical mind, it can't. She's saying like, no, if I can prove in some way that it's real, then that means you're wrong and that you have to be more open to more possibilities. Yes, exactly. And I think, again, it's it's uh, kind of driving that wedge. I've, I've said it a couple of times, but, um, but let's see. So Mike has to go immediately back inside. They don't really get very far on their walk. Maggie visits him again, I guess, the next day. He's got some like maps and charts laid out on the table and uh, he's figured it out. Apparently, there was some winds that were passing through an alfalfa field, he says, that was dusted with pesticides. And that wind like came straight to you know where they were walking. And those pesticides must have uh, set off his allergies pretty bad. So he says, you know, the good news is that it his reaction uh, wasn't caused by, he says, general environmental factors. It was just, you know, that kind of, weird freak instance where the wind carried these pesticides towards him. So it suggests that he should be able to be fine in Sicily still. That was just like a, a bit of a fluke. And Maggie really doubles down here. She says, okay, well then if it's fine, let's let's go. Let's go outside now. Yeah, and that's when it's revealed. He's like, you know, no, like I still have to wait. I have to plan these out. And at that moment, it seems like Joel won because previously – they had a scene together in the brick where Joel is telling Maggie that he couldn't even go down Main Street if he wanted to. Like, he just won't do it. And it almost seems like he's right in this scene where, like, he won't do it, even though it's proven that it's from the pesticide, not from the general environment of Sicily, he still won't go outside. Yeah, Joel says, in that scene you're talking about, Joel says, the man is in a bubble because he wants to be in a bubble. So... And that that really kind of like underlines what's going to happen. Like Maggie really wants to try to bring him out of that bubble. And I think uh, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, the way people change, you know, 
Matt seems to be going through a change from giving up the dollar, trying to decompress. Really, you know, his storyline maybe shows that people don't really change or, you know, maybe you shouldn't try to change people necessarily. And in a way, in the end of this episode, Mike doesn't, I mean, he does overcome maybe if if it's true what Joel's saying, like uh, Mike would be overcoming this fear of not not wanting to leave the bubble, but uh, with the condition that he's still inside of a spacesuit. So I don't know. It's like s- small changes, um, small climaxes, I guess. Okay. So you're saying like small incremental changes, but still remaining true to themselves. Like it's, yeah. it's not like they fundamentally changed. Which I think is uh, pretty typical for this show. I mean, I think it's very typical of uh, regular human beings. Like, true, yeah. I think that small incremental changes are the most healthiest ways. Yeah, and I like how the show can, um, it doesn't have to be a, a huge explosive change. They can make a, a pretty meaningful expression with with just uh, small changes in, in a character. All right, so that brings us to our last scene that we touched on briefly earlier in the episode. But we see that Mike and Maggie are together, and Mike has got a full-on astronaut suit, just waving at people, just having a good time. Yeah, it turns out he's he's borrowing Maurice's astronaut suit, uh, and we get this um, this music again. Um, it's like that big band swing music that was played at the top of the episode. Again, it's um, replaced on the DVD. But it's almost, it's pretty cool. It's almost like Mike sort of gathers a bit of a parade, you know, like people in the town are walking with him. You know, after a certain point, there's like walking behind him. People will walk up to him and he'll say, hello. It's like, uh, it reminds me of like astronaut parades. Like whenever I think Maurice says like they would drive down and wave to the crowd and stuff. Yeah, I, I noted town the music begins to swell and overtake the sound in this scene. So we begin to, uh, you know, just like the dialogue and stuff begins to fade out. It's not subtitled, but you can kind of hear uh, as a as a dog kind of walks up to Mike, he says, oh, look, an earth dog. Did you hear that? Wait, what? I didn't hear that. Yeah, he's like joking because he's like, He's like in in an outer space thing. He's like, look, an Earth dog. Well, that does bring us to Doggo Watch 2020. <laughs> yeah. Took us to the end of the episode, but there are dogs uh, wandering in the street and on leashes. Yeah. They belong to other people. They made it. They made it in right before the cut. So yeah, Mike enters into the brick, and that is sort of our fade to black cut to credits end of the episode. So now it's that time in our podcast where we like to toss to a guest someone who has you know, never seen the show before, or in this case is watching it sort of for the first time. Our guest this episode is Eric. He reached out to us to say that he had started watching the show and found our podcast and enjoyed sort of listening along as he watched. And that he even has, he's got a podcast of his own. Now he'll tell you a little bit about it, but when he reached out to us, he had a podcast called Stan and Dave Need Wedding Dates that covered the filmography of Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch, you know, Stan and Dave. Uh, but he's got another podcast uh, that's that's running now, so he'll mention that at the top of his review. But let's clear the floor for Eric and see what he's got to say about this episode. Hello, fellow Mooseheads. Hello, Lee and Charles. Uh, my name is Eric. I am uh, a podcast host. I host the show... Uh, West versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator, a show about 
Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Paul W.S. Anderson. Uh, very excited to share my thoughts on Blowing Bubbles. Uh, this is my uh, first time watching Northern Exposure. I have been going through the show since the beginning or middle of summer, maybe. Uh, so I've been watching about an episode a night, and up to this point, I am almost done with season four, so this is perfect timing to talk about Blowing Bubbles. Uh, I really love the show. I just real quick would like to say that my favorite episode so far has got to be A Hunting We Will Go, the episode where uh, Joel goes hunting and uh, Ed buys Ruth Ann a grave for her birthday. I love that episode so much because it deals with death and, and loss and it's such a heavy, it's got such a heavy message, but it's, it's like the funniest episode of the show. Um, and it's, it's just so sweet and I, I, I love it so much. Uh, and my favorite characters so far would have to be Adam, Chris, and Shelly. Uh, all that being said, Blowing Bubbles is uh, it's an interesting episode. I, I hate to say this, but at this point, I'm not, um, I'm not fully sold on Mike Monroe. I, I, I like the idea of his character. Um, I do think it, it's a funny character, and I do think that uh, I do like his sort of contentious relationship with, with Fleischman. It's funny. It's a funny dynamic. Um, I just feel like when we, when we are in his weird bubble home... This this episode focuses on him a lot, and it sort of at some points doesn't feel like Northern Exposure to me. Um, and I hope that I you know grow to 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 love this character like I did with with Adam and and some of these other characters. But he's just uh, I don't know. There's just something about him that I just it's not the actor. I like the actor. It's just uh, it doesn't it doesn't fully fit in my what I've come to expect with, with this show up to this point. That being said, I love it when the show takes, takes a lot of, uh, weird leaps and, and introduces these wacky characters. Um, they tend to do that once in a while. Uh, and I do, it's one of the things I love most about this show, but sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I I'm hoping that I'll turn around on Mike Monroe. Not not doing it for me quite yet, though. Uh, the other storyline with Ruth Ann's son. This is another character that I don't like, but I think that I'm not supposed to like him. Um, what I do like about this uh, storyline is you introduce this character that's so um, he's used to such a fast paced like capitalist centric lifestyle. Um, and when you plug a character like that into just a sleepy Alaska town of Sicily, uh, you really, it really accentuates sort of the, the way of life in Sicily and, and sort of reminds you of, you know, why the town itself is so charming and why it's such an interesting setting for a TV show. So uh, all that being said, not my favorite episode, but I, I love every episode of the show. And I'm, you know, I'm so glad that you guys are covering season four finally. I can't wait to listen. Can't wait to hear what you guys think about blowing bubbles. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll have you on Wes versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator to talk about uh, a Wes Anderson film one of these days. So, fellas, thank you so much for what you do. And uh, talk to you later. Bye. All right. That was Eric. Eric, love your thoughts. And I got to say, man, 
that is a wacky podcast name. I had to <laughs> yeah. hear it twice to be like, oh, okay. <laughs> what is it like? It's, I like it though. Yeah, it's uh, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, Paul W. S. Anderson, and uh, I guess just Predator for the for the versus joke. <laughs> I like that Eric concluded his favorite episode and favorite characters. Uh, not a lot of our podcast guests do that, but. He liked a hunting we will go, which I believe me and you, Lee, both liked it. As yeah, well. I can't remember what our I, I don't remember what our ranking was. It was probably in my top five of uh of like best of that season. Um, certainly, I I remember our podcast episode very fondly, and our guest for that episode too. I just remember uh, I don't know, just exchanging thoughts about that episode was very interesting. I still remember a moment in that episode. It's ingrained in my brain. It's when Joel takes the shotgun out and he's going to go shoot at the bird and the way that the camera pivots with it. Yeah. Uh, I remember it's such a short, like one second shot, but it's still memorable to me. Yeah. I remember talking about that. There was like an interesting camera, camera move there. Yeah. So, Eric is also not sold on Mike. He's kind of sharing the initial thoughts that we have on him where we, we just don't really know what's up with this character. Yeah, I was really curious to have Eric watch this episode for our podcast because, you know, he had mentioned that he'd already started. He's just watching it for the first time. And this was, as we were coming into season four, Charles, I was very, uh, I don't know, very worried in a way, but just curious to see how Mike would pan out for me. And I, again, I, as I said, I think it's uh, better than I remember, though I am, uh, I don't know, I'm not letting my guard down. I, I think, <laughs> I think it, he makes a point, it, it really sort of feels like, at least in this episode, Mike is somehow like a central character while still being a guest star. I mean, he's not your typical guest star because I've already spoiled it for you, Charles. He's going to be a recurring character, but it's just odd when you have a, a guest star, but sort of um, focus on it in such a central way. Like Maggie acts off of Mike and Joel acts off of Mike. And um, I don't know, I, I maybe I'm totally misremembering, but it definitely feels different to have uh, one of these guest stars, tertiary characters kind of taking the spotlight. Yeah, it's like how Eric mentioned that it doesn't even feel like a Northern Exposure episode. Maybe that's because there's not a whole lot of Joel in this episode and we're used to him being the center of attention. But maybe it just doesn't feel like a Northern Exposure episode because... It's like Mike has that sort of climax and you could say Ruth Ann does as well, but we don't see that, you know, it's like we don't get that sort of change or climactic moment for Joel or Maggie really, you know, it's, it's almost as if Mike sort of steals that moment. You know, I've been thinking about the character that was going to be coming in season four because you had revealed to me that there was going to be a recurring character that would come to the show. And I was thinking, like, is it going to be a doctor like Joel? Was it going to be a completely new left field concept? I never would have guessed that it would have been a character like this. And now that I'm thinking it over in my head, I kind of wish they would have went in a different direction <laughs> with the character that was going to inevitably become part of the cast. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can see what they were going for. It's um, 
Definitely, I th- I've said this already, uh, I feel like a broken record, an, an antagonal, sort of antagonistic force for Joel. And it's like a patient who Joel can't cure. And um, it's someone who Joel's going to have to interact with constantly. But the the methods of like communication and just worldview are going to be so different. So, you know, it seems like rife for conflict and I don't know, entertaining drama, but I don't know, at least the approach in this episode, and I'm, I'm going to be tracking it as we keep watching more episodes, but kind of what Eric is saying is it sort of pulls that, drags the story away from Joel and Maggie uh, in, in a kind of a weird way. You know, this idea of sort of like a patient character to match Joel also reminds me of Eve, you know, very different vibe from Mike, but She's an example of like a patient that Joel cannot cure. Uh, why didn't why, why, why didn't they just make her the recurring cast member? I know that's what you wanted, Charles. They went with Mike. I will say also, um, I'll, I'll just tack this on. I don't think I mentioned it. I do like the actor for Mike uh, a lot, at least in this episode. His name is Anthony Edwards. Oh, he's in a uh, Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> He's in, uh, I uh, like- no, dude, he's goose. <laughs> Wait, is that from Revenge- Top Gun? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's in, I guess he's in a lot of like, I feel like I've seen him in a lot of stuff just like in little parts, you know, I, I was looking at his Wikipedia <laughs> just to try to find out more about him. He seems like he races, uh, there's like an entry on his page talking about like how he's won some trophies or something like he races like. Indy 5,000 cars or what, what do you, what do you call that? They made a pet cemetery too. Oh yeah. I hear that one's like dumber and like better in that it's, it's bad. Oh, well yeah. Okay. Well he's in it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) So it turns out that Eric is also not a fan of Matt. Yeah. He said, uh, we're not supposed to like Matt again. I think that's just like the, just like our um, conditioning of media, like sort of painting anyone who's like a tax man or an accountant, pinching pennies, capitalist. Yeah, anybody of that nature. Though, I mean, it's it's their livelihood. Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> but I think uh, it there is the point that Ruthann says, you know, and and that Eric brings up. It's uh, you bring in a character like Matt who is used to like a fast paced environment, when you bring him to Sicily, it really accentuates that small town vibe. And, uh, you know, Ruthann says kind of, even before we meet Matt, she says to Maggie, he's not like us. You know, that's really interesting. You say that he's not like us because Mike isn't like us. Well, I was going to, I don't know, like obviously. Yeah. But I would say I wouldn't be so surprised I'm not surprised that he's a character on the show because he is like strange. And I think strange does fit in with the show at least. Oh, okay. I I get what you mean. So he, he fits in, in the context of the town of Sicily, but outside of it. Yeah. He is a, it's very different, unusual human being Mm -hmm. and uh, ex lawyer. So, I mean, again, I I brought that up. I'm sure I know that's going to come up eventually. So we'll get to see more of that aspect, but um, yeah, I don't know. Really, all I can say about Mike is maybe it caught me off guard at first how friendly he was, but I don't know. It still felt very contentious with Joel Fleischman. I, I kept 
trying to grab at that idea of maybe passive aggressive. I don't know how you would describe it, but something's happening there. All right. Well, that was Eric's commentary for the episode. Thank you so much, Eric, for appearing on the pod. Uh, We look forward to appearing on your pod. That's right. Yeah, we'll be talking about the Wes Anderson film, The Royal Tenenbaums. Charles, this is a, I guess, sort of like I tossed to you, like, which director would you like to pick? Uh, And then once you picked Wes Anderson, I sort of was narrowing down choices with you. The Royal Tenenbaums, uh, I think at this point, either we've already recorded it and it hasn't been released, or you should go check out their podcast now to check out uh, the episode with us talking about Royal Tenenbaums with um, Eric and his co-host. Once again, the name of that podcast is Wes versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator. All right, Charles. Well, before we go, I'm going to give you the title of the next episode of Northern Exposure. It's called On Your Own. Any predictions? On Your Own. Okay, so if we're predicting that Mike's going to be a recurring character, I'm going to guess that he appears in the next episode, and he's going to try to get better with his MCS. He's going to try to make it out of the bubble without Maggie's help. Cool. All right. Well, Charles, (laughs) I'll leave it at that. I won't give any spoilers. I'll see you. Uh, next week. All right, I'll see you next week, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Eric for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com, at Northern Overpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.